According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 and uh, the blessings we have in our study on eternal security. What a, what a joy. Of all the places you can go to that communicate eternal security clearer than any other passage of Scripture, this is definitely a, uh, a top ten passage. You come to this uh, and other texts that we're going to see here this morning as well. So uh, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is our blessing to assemble on this day, and we thank you for the grace that makes this possible. Father, we thank you for the grace of God that sent a Savior and the blessings we have of salvation by faith in Christ. And I thank you, Father, that salvation is the beginning of your will for our life, that uh, we grow in the grace and knowledge, that we uh, embrace our Melchizedek priesthood. Now, Father, we have the better things concerning each one of us, that things that accompany salvation. And so I pray that as we study to show ourselves approved, that you would open our eyes to these powerful truths and then encourage us, Father, with a recognition that the that eternal life is eternal, that salvation when received is never lost, that we, if we ever had it at all, we have it forever. And this is uh, reinforced for us here on this day. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so in uh, the process of this, you might remember that way back when Melchizedek was introduced in chapter 5, he was introduced in such a way that the author said, I wish I could take you deeper, but you're not ready for this yet. Now, Melchizedek doctrine is deep doctrine, and it says so there in uh, 511. Uh, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. But then in chapter 6, it's as if uh, the author can't help himself. He just has to take them now into the Melchizedek realm. And that's where we've been now in, in recent classes centering on this. And the, uh, the high priesthood of Melchizedek and how powerful is this? We do have a high priest uh, that uh, ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. We have the eternal high priest and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only went to the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead, but then after he rose from the dead, he ascended. He ascended to be seated at the Father's right hand. And it's the session of Jesus Christ, now that we focus, whereby he operates in his Melchizedek high priesthood interceding for us. And it is the main point. If you get lost in some of the details, I don't blame you. Hebrews is a tough book. But when you just take a quick peek at chapter 8 and verse 1 and see uh, the main point in what has been said is this. <laughs> All right? So if you, if you don't get anything else out of chapter 6 and 7, read 8.1 and figure that's the, that's the big deal, right? We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, these things that used to exist, they were replicas, they were copies, they were patterned after the heavenly reality. Jesus is operating in the heavenly reality at the right hand of God the Father. And this is the main point. 
So we can't miss it. We have to understand it. We have to embrace it. And then we have to recognize what our duty is. Because when he entered within the veil, he entered as a forerunner. And a forerunner does not go by himself. All right? He may be the first one in, but there is a long train of runners after the forerunner. And that's us. We are the priesthood in Christ. We are a kingdom of priests. We are royal priests. And so we operate with our Savior. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that's, uh, that's the big deal out of, out of the book of Hebrews. This is our Leviticus right here. As far as Israel had a Levitical code for their priestly service, we have the book of Hebrews for our priestly service. And ours is so much greater than Levi as we've been studying here in these recent chapters. And so in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 7, uh, a week ago we were dealing with this, that uh, in verses 20 through 22 we noticed that when they received their priesthood, it was without an oath. But when Jesus received his priesthood, it was not without an oath. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, a double negative there to reinforce it in ways that we struggle with. In, as English speakers, a double negative cancels itself out and we have to we have to figure it out to decide what's it really saying here. But um, the double negative strengthens it in Greek, and we have here the declaration that our Savior is a high priest by an oath, the God who cannot lie. And so let's pick up here. Uh, Hebrews 7.20 says, "...inasmuch as it was not without an oath, uh, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind." You are a priest forever. You are a priest forever. And this is the promise that came in Psalm 110. And it's the same promise that came. Verse 1 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And verse 4 says, you are a priest forever. And those uh, Psalm 110 links those together in the Messiah as, we, uh, as we've been studying it. And so verse 22, so much the more also... Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. He's the mediator of a better covenant, and he's the guarantee of a better covenant. In the, uh, in the Old Testament, Mosaic law was inferior. It had a mediator that was Moses, but it had no guarantees. And in fact, everyone that was functioning under the law of Moses would fail. No one could keep the law until Jesus kept the law perfectly. And so these are the issues that we were looking at last week. The selection of Levi and the ordination of Aaron were oath-free events. And uh, took the time to look at some of these in Exodus and Numbers. The intense nature of God placing himself under an oath. Understand, he's the God who cannot lie. He is the God of truth. Everything he says is true. He cannot lie. So, but then he takes a vow. Then he puts himself under an oath. He demonstrates the seriousness in such a way that we can relate to. For example, the solemnity of our testimony in court, for example, whenever we have to stand before a judge and we put our hand on a Bible, we raise our hand and we swear on a Bible, we swear by the Lord that we will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that that solemnity, that oath-binding uh, aspect of that reinforces the, the terrible consequences of perjury, the terrible consequences of, of uh, defying the court. It's an insult to the court, and it's defi- perjury is an insult to the court, and uh, tremendous penalties that should be applied for perjury. <laughs> Don't get me political this morning. 
that should be applied to perjury before a judge. Now, you have a God who cannot lie, and so you would stop to say, well, we don't have to bother putting him under oath. He cannot lie. But he says, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm putting myself under oath here. And he swears that oath by his own eternal life. He says, as I live, declares the Lord. And so when he takes a vow and he stakes his own eternal life on it, this just becomes overwhelming. It communicates the greatness of our Savior's priesthood because it was not without an oath. And in reality, this is kind of a way to summarize in a very short capsule statement uh, the uh, doctrine that we learned from chapter 6 that came up in verses 16 through 20. So I would encourage you to, to review that if, uh, if you have those notes available, if you were here for those classes. Otherwise, if you missed them, the MP3s are sitting on the website just minding their own MP3 business. You can go get them anytime you want, day or night, and uh, download them to your own system. All right, which gets us now to verses 23 and 24. Here's another contrast. The former priests, on the one hand, the author liked the on the one hand, on the other hand, on the, it's running out of hands here, but we'll, we'll go with it. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. <laughs> okay? I mean, yeah, Aaron was a great high priest, but then he died. And so then Eliezer became high priest, and he was all right, but then he died. And then now they need a third high priest, and then another high priest. And so through all the the years of, of Israel's existence, you know, from, you know, if Aaron was at 1400 BC and all the way to Jesus now in the first century, you have all of these high priests and that kept dying. That's why they existed in greater numbers. However, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he abides forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. We have a benefit to this, and it's bigger than you think it is. It's actually quite profound and very uh, significant, as we are going to break it down here in a moment. And because he continues forever, because he holds his priesthood permanently, it says, therefore he is able also to save forever. He is able also to save forever. Remember the Old Testament, that high priest, he's the, he's the one and only guy who could ever go into the Holy of Holies. He is the one and only guy that could ever accomplish the Day of Atonement, could ever bring the sacrifice within the veil. And only he could do it. The one guy one day a year could go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the Shekinah glory of God the Father. And so for a nation and their, uh, their relationship to the Lord, their salvation as we, as we understand it, that high priest is, is huge. And obviously when he dies, you've got to get another one in there. And, and that's, that's significant. Well, for us... It's not just the replica. It's not just the shadow doctrine. It's the reality. It's the reality of a high priest who does not die, who cannot die, and who ever liveth to make intercession for the saints, who stands before the Father. And that's what we're going to see here in, uh, in these next verses. After 23 and 24, we'll tackle verse 25 and see the eternal security application there. Able to save also forever. I think uh, if we have any King James people here, I think that's the old save to the uttermost that uh, was in the, in the 1611 English. And I like it. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a high priest who died once, rose again, will never die again. He is the guarantee of our salvation. 
All right, so some points related to this. Maybe it's a no-brainer. Maybe it goes without saying. Um, But physical death was an inherent limitation to the Levitical priesthood. Physical death was an inherent limitation to the Levitical priesthood, yet it contained a provision of grace for those who had fled to a city of refuge. And this, uh, this is not paid attention to very often, and this is, uh, this is curious to me, particularly why it was implemented the way it was implemented and uh, as a grace benefit in temporal life for the uh, covenant nation of Israel. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but uh, leave your church bulletin in, in Hebrews 7 and then flip back with me, if you would, to um, Numbers 35. And then don't forget to retrieve your church bulletin after church and read it. There'll be some uh, information in there. Numbers 35. And uh, what an ignored book, <laughs> you know, paid a lot of attention to Genesis, that's creation, all real exciting, and then Exodus, that's Red Sea and Moses, and that's real exciting. But then there's Leviticus, and that kind of kills everybody on their daily, on their annual reading schedule. And then, and then I think the Leviticus hangover actually impacts numbers. I really do, because you, you, you start to give numbers a second chance after the Leviticus hangover, and it starts with those censuses in the early chapters, and so really, it gets a bum rap. Um, numbers does have the, the, the Balaam donkey story, which is pretty cool, and then it has these other issues, so it's, it's actually worthwhile. Um, <laughs> all scriptures, God-breathed and profitable. Uh, but in Numbers 35, we have the, the Levitical cities are designated, and then cities of refuge are designated. And the cities of refuge are, are critical uh, in the case of, uh, of a man that's been accused of something he didn't do, or a man who maybe he did do it, but he needs the extenuating circumstances to be presented fairly before an impartial judge. And so this was a place whereby a, uh, a manslayer could be, uh, could be preserved, he could be saved, if you will, uh, until such time as, as his trial could be convened. And so the cities of refuge, you'll notice, I don't want to read a whole chapter for you this morning, but starting in verse 6, um, they become cities of refuge. You shall give for the manslayer to flee to. Now this is going to be different than a murderer. And it's a different term. The commandment is thou shalt not murder. And we know that the taking of human life, for example, is, is in, in warfare, in self-defense. There's other venues in which uh, capital punishment can execute a, a, a criminal, things of that nature. But a manslayer is not a murderer. He's not been adjudicated as a murderer yet. But he, ha- he is responsible for a loss of human life. And so this becomes important. And so he has a, have to, he has a, a place to flee to. And so uh, these 42 cities here, all the cities which you shall give to the Levites, uh, six of the refuge cities, 42 others, the Levi gets 48 cities altogether. They don't have uh, land, but they have these cities. Now, um, this gets spelled out then as the cities of refuge, three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. That's verse 14. And uh, therefore, the sons of Israel, notice verse 15, these six cities shall be for refuge to the sons of Israel. Those are the citizens of Israel in their own land. And then for the alien and for the sojourner among them. 
The Bible has a lot to say about citizens and aliens and people that belong there and people that don't. And, uh, and here we have it. But they all get the cities of refuge provision if in fact, if anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. So maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was, uh, there were other circumstances involved. If it was unintentional, then it's not capital murder. All right? It is manslaying, however. He has shed man's blood, and that's the image of God. And so it's a serious issue related to these things. Verse 16, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. That's aggravated with a deadly weapon. If he struck him down with a stone uh, in his hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or a wooden object, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. These are the circumstances that have to be adjudicated. The, The findings of fact have to happen legally judicially with two or three witnesses and an impartial judge. And it says, the blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall meet him, he shall put him to death when he meets him. And so there is a venue for this, and we don't have this in the modern world, it's not possible, but think about it. If 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 we have capital punishment in the state of Texas, and I've been there, I've, I've been in the death chamber in Huntsville, and, and I've seen, uh, it's not just a switch, it's actually two buttons. Uh, but in any event, I've, uh, think about it though. What if the victim's family, who typically are, are allowed to watch through a glass window, what if the buttons were on their side of the glass window, whereby they were afforded the opportunity to push the button, two buttons, that... Uh, which the first one is just an anesthetic, puts them to sleep, and then the second one administers the, the lethal dose. Um, you know, what if, yeah, yeah, you only want one button? Anyway, what if the victim's family was afforded the, the blood avenger principle, as it says here? Anyway, this is how Israel operated, which is why when Jesus said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, that was applying to the fact that the murder victim's family would usually be the first stone throwers as the blood avenger in uh, in a murder case. All right. But then there's other things where maybe it was an accident. And uh, like in verse 22, if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object of stone without seeing it, in other words, if it's accidental, then, uh, then he can flee. And here's the point. And so he was not his enemy. He was not seeking his injury. It was not intentional or premeditated. Then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The blood avenger, of course, the family still has a loss. They still have um, a, a grievance against, uh, against the manslayer. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. He shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so now there's a connection here. This is very interesting. So if he's rescued from the blood avenger, then he gets to live in exile. He has to live in the city of refuge, and he has to live there until the death of the high priest, and then he's free. And then he can go back to his land grant, he can go back to his tribe, he can go back to where he belongs, and he's delivered from that point forward. But if he tries to sneak out of town, um, he's vulnerable. If, uh, 
Verse 26 says, If the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have stayed, remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. Okay, so that's how it worked. And that's the, the procedure, that was the legal procedure for a manslayer uh, and was not a get-out-of-jail-free card. If he was actually guilty, if it was premeditated, if it was murder, then the city of refuge doesn't save him. The city of refuge uh, only... That's only while it can be adjudicated until the until the all the facts can be confirmed, and then uh, if he's a, if he's a murderer, he's he's put to death. That's uh, that's without question. So, this is uh, a grace. I think it's a marvelous grace provision for those who had fled to a city of refuge. And you think in a lot of ways, uh, there was a lot of sin in the Old Testament. They didn't have a sacrifice. There was a lot of sin in the Old Testament, a willful sin, a defiant sin. You couldn't just bring a goat and get by with a sin offering and say, okay, I'm good to go now. Uh, those, those premeditated defiant sins did not have a Levitical sacrifice. All you could do in those cases was wait for the following day of atonement, which nationally cleansed the, the entire nation. For a manslayer, you had to wait till the death of the high priest. And then you had a, a reboot, if you will. You had a reset and you were restored back to your tribe and your, your land and, and, uh, and so forth. So here's a, here's a grace provision for those who, who uh, in, in the Levitical priesthood now. Now, what happens though, <laughs> what happens though, let's say you're a manslayer, you're in the Old Testament, you're a manslayer, and it was an accident, so now you're in the city of refuge and you're waiting for that high priest to die. Well, what happens if that guy doesn't die? <laughs> what happens if he's a high priest that never dies? Well, then you've got a problem, okay? And that's a, that's a curious thing that now we have a high priest who doesn't die. And so now, if you think about it, we have a once and for all sacrifice. We have a once and for all forgiveness of sin that we receive when we get saved. And then we're ushered into the body of Christ eternally with an eternal security. And then what do we have provided for us for our willful defiant sins. What do we have provided for us if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth? Is there, a, is there another upcoming Day of Atonement next October we can look forward to? No, there is not. Because Jesus died once and for all. And so a willful defiant sin in the church age is far worse than a willful defiant sin in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, at least they had the next Day of Atonement to look forward to. Or they had the, the death of the high priest to look forward to, to to get them out of that city of refuge status. You and I? No. He died once and for all. And this is what we're, this is what we're dealing with now in our Melchizedek priesthood. Significantly improved, I mean significantly superior, but then also much more severe in the consequences. Much more severe if we decide to become defiant sinners in the church age, if we decide to walk away from doctrine, if we decide to just live as unto ourselves, we're trampling underfoot the Son of God. And the dire warning that comes in Hebrews 10 is powerful and uh, and we'll be there soon. All right. If I quit rambling in chapter 7, we'll get there sooner. Now the resurrection of Jesus Christ suits Him to preside over a permanent priesthood. The resurrection of Jesus Christ suits him. Now, he was already a priest prior to the resurrection. He was ministering as a priest on the cross. But then raised on the third day, he is now 
risen eternally. He has this eternal life, never to die again. And this suits him to preside over a permanent priesthood, over a permanent priesthood. Imagine, you know, you're, you got a job application, you're applying for a job, and he tells you, uh, by the way, this is, uh, this is an, eternal, an eternal job, <laughs> okay? There's no retirement from this job. Uh, you're going to hold this position forever. And then uh, you say, well, I'm, I'm mortal. I'm going to probably die in the next 50 years or so. Well, then you're not qualified, okay? Because this is a job that lasts forever. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Our priesthood is an eternal priesthood, which is why we require eternal life in order to hold our priesthood, the power of an indestructible life, which is what qualifies us to serve in this, in this capacity. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ suits him to preside over a permanent priesthood, and it contains a provision of infinitely greater grace and an eternal refuge to which we flee. So if this is the analogy now to the cities of refuge thing, they had a grace when their high priest died because they had a place to flee, but we have a much greater place to flee, and we have a, a tremendous benefit with a high priest who cannot die. And so... This contains a provision of infinitely greater grace and an eternal refuge to which we flee. We're not just fleeing somewhere for the meantime, hoping to come back someday. We're fleeing forever into the arms of our Savior. We are fleeing forever under His wings. We have an eternal refuge that we flee to with a high priest who cannot die. Does that make sense? This is the contrast. And this is what Hebrews is driving at as it says, all right, we can get our bulletin back. In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't exist in greater numbers. He's one guy, the one and only, the only begotten. He holds, he continues forever. He abides forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He's our refuge. We flee to him. I like Psalm 11 and verse 1. I like Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. It's hard to just narrow these verses down. There's dozens of them in the Old Testament where the Lord is our rock on which we stand. The Lord is our fortress. He's our, he's our refuge. But just boiling it down to maybe my top two favorites would be Psalm 11 and Isaiah 26. If you have a favorite that's not one of these two, then um, share it during the potluck dinner. We can fellowship over these verses today. Um, and I would love to hear your favorite refuge verses that you claim in your, uh, in your prayer life. But I like Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Doesn't bother me at all because I know who my refuge is. I know where I fled. So they can fire all the arrows they want. Doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, because it's the Lord that I take refuge. That's Psalm 11. How about Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4? Remember this one from our Isaiah and Jeremiah series? Isaiah 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. See, walls are a good thing. Again, I'm not going to get political this morning. I'm just saying. (laughs) Security for a population that the king guarantees. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. 
So we got big, beautiful gates for the righteous to enter. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. What a promise. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. This is our stability. This is our security. This is our fortress. And uh, how powerful is this? When will he let us down? According to this verse, never. How long can we trust in him? Forever. All right. We have an eternal priesthood and an eternal refuge. And we have something so much greater than what all those shadows in the Old Testament were just, uh, they were just shadows. They were teaching doctrine in anticipation of a coming substance, anticipation of a coming reality. Our reality is in Christ. And so we have the benefit here. And then we have able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. Save forever those who draw near to God through him. Well, wait a minute. What if I don't want like that? What if that sounds too uh, exclusive? You know, I mean, seriously, we're modern now. We live in the modern age of pluralism and we we have tolerance and understanding that there's many paths, there's many ways to truth. You know, what about the good Mormons and the good Muslims and the good Hindus and the good, you know, um, whatever, the good cannibals? Uh, I mean, seriously, if, if you're lumping everybody into this, there is one way. And those who draw near through Christ are the ones who draw near. Those who attempt to draw near through any other way don't get there because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so when it says, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We've got a twin statement with respect to phase one and phase two salvation right here in the same verse. And it's a beautiful thing. So looking at verse 25 then, what do we have? Eternal security. Saving forever. Both phase one and phase two, I believe, within the context of this verse. Able to save forever those who draw near to God. This passage is a clear declaration of the eternal security of phase one salvation. Now if you don't know these terms, we use them a lot around here. Uh, so much so that I want to get a graphic that I can put up at any time, put a little icon there on my desktop and bring it up for you. Because if I don't do that, then I've got to draw it with my own chicken scratch artwork. And I've been told that um, of all the things that never get mentioned during Pastor Appreciation Month, uh, my artwork never gets mentioned at all during Pastor Appreciation Month. Nevertheless, you know my drawing with the cross and the crown and the, and the timeline in between. The fact that we get saved from the, the penalty of sin when we become believers. When we, when we hear the gospel and we trust Christ, we believe Christ, we receive eternal life. At that moment that he gives us eternal life, we're saved. And we're saved from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Not a problem anymore. I'm freed from that. I have eternal life in Christ Jesus. But then the New Testament uses the word saved in a phase two application referring to our ongoing Christian walk. 
And this happens over and over and over again in our daily experience. We're constantly being saved from sin, from the power of sin as we're tempted, from the the snares that creep up, from the, the lust of our own sin nature. That's why with humility we have to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. And so we need daily salvation all day, every day, every time a sin temptation hits us. And the Word of God will do that. Jesus will do that. Our high priest will do that, which is the context for this passage here. Because he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And so he is able to save. And then, of course, phase three salvation is when we depart from this body, when we depart from this life, either physical death or rapture. Phase three, we're going to be saved. We're saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin. And a day is coming when we're going to be saved from the presence of sin, when we're going to be removed from the presence of sin within us, and we're going to be in a glorified body with no more sin, no more death. These first things have passed away. All right. So, dealing with phase one salvation, if, uh, if you need a collection of verses to use, here's, uh, here's some good uh, tools for your toolbox. Here's a good uh, selection of uh, weapons for your, uh, you know, arrows for your quiver, if you will. Whatever, uh, if you need uh, additional ammunition, and it, and it may be, uh, quite often you encounter uh, believers, and they're saved, they love Jesus, they want to go to heaven when they die, but sadly their church is telling them that maybe they're going to lose their salvation. And there's a lot of Arminian uh, theology churches out there whereby people are just terrified, working hard to stay saved. And it's, it's sad when, uh, when you encounter folks like that. And so I found it useful to have uh, a broad spectrum of verses, not just one, you know, because, I mean, is one not sufficient? <laughs> if, if there's one verse that says, I have it eternally, that's sufficient. But how about a dozen? How about more? As many more as we can, because you never know that one may resonate better than another, that one might just click with somebody in their thinking better than another. And, and you really just can't tell uh, what, what Scripture the Holy Spirit might minister that's really going to lay hold there. So I recommend you get an assortment of eternal security passages. And by the way, if I did not put your favorite eternal security passage on this slide, then, did I mention we're going to have a potluck afterwards, and I hope that you'll stick around And part of what we're going to fellowship over is the scriptures. And so please share your favorite eternal security passages. I love, um, well, let's start here in Hebrews. We have Hebrews 10. Backing up to Hebrews 5, verses 9 and 10. You might recall. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh... When he was walking his earthly walk in the kenosis, humility of the first advent, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Jesus was uh, praying to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. But it was not possible. The Father heard his prayers and said, no, you are going to die on the cross. And Jesus said, yes, sir, and he went to the cross, and he died. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he was already sinless and innocent perfect, but now he's perfect, perfected. Having been perfected, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Notice, without the cross, none of us are saved. 
But with the cross, all of us are saved eternally. It is an eternal salvation. If you have any kind of salvation, you've got an eternal salvation, which is what we see here. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the source of eternal salvation cannot be separated from his Melchizedek priesthood. Just see those linked verses the way that they are. Verse 9 and verse 10. The source of eternal salvation or the basis of eternal salvation is God's designation of him as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So if you dismiss Melchizedek doctrine at your peril, Melchizedek doctrine is actually the basis for our eternal security. And it's, uh, there's, and this is why it's vital, I think, that we embrace it the way that we do. All right. And, and truly, I mean, maybe that helps take the pressure off, right? Because if, if, if my security is grounded in his Melchizedek priesthood, well then that gives me more of a confidence in my own Melchizedek priesthood that I, I'm a fellow priest with him. He's the apostle and high priest of my confession. And so I'm serving in my priesthood not under fear, hoping not to lose what I can't lose, but I'm serving out of thankfulness and out of in response to what he's doing. And, that, and then that becomes even more powerful because, wow, the idea that I'm going to blow it and throw it all away uh, well, what about the idea of Jesus blowing it and throwing it all away? That's not possible. How would he, Jesus disobey the Father? If Jesus could disobey the Father, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. So we know that he can't disobey the Father. He went to the cross. We think he's going to disobey the Father now and kick us out of heaven? That doesn't make any sense. How's that going to work? So this is, uh, this is a guarantee of our eternal security. The uh, The blessings of uh, as sometimes is stated, once saved, always saved, which, uh, which is true. No, no verse says that, but all the verses say that when you put them together and develop your comprehensive eternal security doctrine. All right, back to the Gospel of John. You want some more? You say, I don't need any more. I'm convinced. Well, I'm going to give you some more anyway. Because, uh, like I say, it's good to have a, a handful. It's good to have as many as you can have. And in fact, you know, if, if you're dealing with a skeptic, give them one. If they don't like it, give them a second one. If they don't like it, give them a third one. If they don't like it, just keep giving them verse after verse after verse. And still, if they're going to insist on their Arminian theology, that's fine. Just walk away because uh, the Word of God is powerful. It, it accomplishes the purpose for which God sends it. And uh, they've got to deal with the Scriptures. They don't have to deal with you. It's not, you're not trying to out-debate somebody or talk them into something. You're just giving them the Word of God. John 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, and um, in verses 9 and 10 here, now, it's, um, uh, no, I don't want 9 and 10, I want uh, ah, 24, that's what I want, thank you. That 5 threw me off, it's John 5, 24, all right. And it's curious. So he talks to them about life and death and resurrection, his equality with God. He was making himself equal to God. He told them he was God, and they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus answered and said to them, he's just doing what his father told him to do. His father showed him these things, and he's, he's now doing them. So uh, in John five nineteen, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing.'" Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. 
And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. You say, what could be greater than Jesus' first advent? A lot of things. How about Jesus' second advent? Or how about before that, the body of Christ and the cross? Here we have the body of Christ. We are doing greater things in the church age. All right. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And so this is the, this is the benefit that we have of being in Christ, is this guarantee of the resurrection. The Father raised Jesus, now Jesus is raising everybody else. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's a one-way street. There is no getting out of that. I love that one-way street. You have past completed action, completed passed out of death into life. You do not come into judgment. We are now in Christ. And an hour is coming and now is. We've got the promise of the resurrection here in John 5. Over to John 6, the bread of heaven. I use this a lot in communion services because it's bread and uh, the bread that we take in communion. By the way, communion this month is delayed a week. It's not next week. It's the week after, just, uh, just so you know. All right. John chapter 6, 37 through 40. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That's eternal security right there. If you lose your salvation, you'd be back to thirsting again. Well, guess what? Never means never. But I say to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You know, if you think you're terrible enough that you don't deserve to be saved anymore, if you think that Jesus is going to cast you out, he promised he wouldn't. So as terrible as you think you are in your Christian walk, Jesus is not a liar. He's not going to throw you out. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose not even one but raise it up on the last day. So if you're saved today, you are always going to be saved. You can never not stop being saved. You can never lose your salvation. Jesus has promised to raise you up on the last day. He cannot lose even one. If he loses one, he's disobeying God the Father. And Jesus is not going to disobey God the Father. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is guaranteed. How do you thwart that? You're going to make Jesus a liar? You're going to make Jesus disobey the Father? You think you're such a terrible sinner that you don't deserve to stay saved? Well, guess what? You're such a terrible sinner, you didn't deserve to get saved either. How about that? But he saved you anyway. It's called grace. You didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, and he died on the cross for your sins. So, John 6, I love it. How about John 10? John 10, I love this. This is probably my, my top, my favorite, favorite. John 10, because this has the, the image of hand-holding. This has the image of being held secure in the hand of God the Father, in the hand of Jesus Christ. There's two hands at work holding me secure, right? You want to tell your kids, you know, hold on with both hands. Well, we've got the hand of God the Father and the hand of God the Son, and they're both holding us secure in our salvation. 
John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So if you think you can lose your eternal life, that means somebody stronger than Jesus. Somebody who's able to snatch you out of Jesus' hand when he's holding you securely. Not only Jesus' hand, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Isn't that beautiful? You know, if you think of it like a, like a relay race or a baton and you're handing something, the Father is handing something, well, the Father hands us to the Son when we get saved, but guess what? So the Son takes hold, but the Father doesn't let go. How cool is that? Now we got two hands holding us secure. So, uh, you know, each one is, in, is infinitely strong. Each one is, in, is omnipotent. So you have infinite strength holding you secure times two, okay, which makes mathematicians mad. They don't like it when I multiply infinity times two. But, oh well, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm just reading the Bible. God the Father with omnipotent hand, God the Son with omnipotent hand, and you're going to overcome double omnipotence. I'm impressed. You know, seriously. If you, vile sinner that you are, if you have the capacity to overcome double omnipotence, uh, that's, 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 that's incredible. That's unbelievable. That means that you yourself must be triple omnipotence. I don't know what that means. That means, that means you can really save yourself at that point. Who needs to be saved if you, that, if you have that kind of sovereignty or that kind of omnipotence? The fact is, we can't overcome the Father. We can't overcome the Son. We certainly can't overcome them both when they are holding us secure in our eternal life. So there it is. And uh, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, just in case you thought you could slip out with the tug of war, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So they're working together. They're working cooperatively. It's not like, you know, the Father's tugging this way and the Son's tugging that way and you can, you know, you can somehow squeak out of there in some kind of a thing like uh, children playing off their parents or whatever. My mom said that, dad said that, and you're, you're getting them against each other. No, I and the Father are one. They are united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and their purpose is keeping you secure with your eternal life. That's just a beautiful thing. And then if that's not enough, my second favorite passage is Romans 8. In Romans 8, from verse 1 to verse 39... You've got Romans 8, which is, starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And there was a, there's a marvelous uh, Puritan writer, Calvinist, uh, but I read him anyway, he's, he's a good guy. Um, Marcus Rainsford, if, if, if you ever want to read it, Marcus Rainsford, okay? And uh, his, his material on Romans 8 is just marvelous. It's called No Condemnation, No Separation. And it's an expository development of Romans chapter 8. And it's, it's, a, it's a thrill to read his treatment on eternal security from, uh, from that chapter. He also, by the way, wrote one on John 17. He wrote, uh, Our Lord Prays for His Own. And it's, a, it's an expositional development of, of the high priestly prayer from John chapter 17. And so those two things I recommend uh, by Marcus Rainsford in that. Anyway, Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Positional truth. If you're saved, you are in Christ Jesus. God the Holy Spirit has baptized you into union with His Son. You are in Christ Jesus. The Greek is en Christo, in Christ, or en Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. Positional truth. And when you're in that sphere, guess what? There's no condemnation ever. All of that's been dealt with. And then it takes you down a lengthy development here. I'm going to skip on down to verses 28 and following. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's us in Christ. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Now if you can lose your... Armenian theology can't handle this. Because if He foreknew you and He predestined you, well then this is guaranteed. Just as your eternal life is guaranteed conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. You say, well, I don't feel glorified. (laughs) Okay, well, this is positional truth reality and it has nothing to do with your feelings. Okay, And I, I get it, I get it. There are days I don't feel glorified either. But I am. I am seated at the right hand of God the Father in Christ. I am glorified. And that's a powerful truth. So what shall we say then? If God is for us, who is against us? Not only that, who's against us and who cares? (laughs) Okay, Because we know the adversary is against us, but big deal. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not now also with him freely give us all things? Think of what He did while we were enemies. Now that we're in Him, man, anything goes. The Father keeps pouring forth. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Like we heard last week, the grace just keeps on coming. It never stops. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And then you have to include yourself in this. I know a lot of times the external critics are one thing and the external conflict is something else, but we tend to get pretty good ourselves. We can beat ourselves up pretty good. In fact, I think I'm better at it than anybody else that's ever criticized me. I can beat myself up better than anybody. And so put myself in this verse. Can I bring a charge against myself? Can I separate myself from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? No. God is the one who justifies. God is the one uh, who, who provides us this in Christ. And who's going to separate us from this? Nobody. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? What is it that can separate us from our position in Christ? Nothing. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That's verse 37. The work of love that He accomplished on the cross is eternal. It makes us overwhelmingly conquerors. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That includes you. In fact, you're in here twice. You are a thing present and you are a created thing. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Where are we? In Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no condemnation, there's no separation. And so we have the eternal security of phase one, salvation. Beyond that, I believe we also have the eternal security the ongoing demonstration of our phase two salvation. Not only is He the guarantee of our eternal life, 
But He is also our intercessor. He intercedes for us. He prays for us daily. He is constantly praying for us. He never ceases to pray for us. So this passage also demonstrates the unceasing nature of phase two salvation. And uh, the role of Jesus Christ as an advocate. And uh, the power in 1 John. I'm going to take these a little bit out of order. uh, Starting in uh, 1 John 2, just for the sake of it. So I don't run out of time and fail to get to 1 John 2. I'll grab it now. Of course, chapter 1 deals with our fellowship and how do we rebound, how do we confess our sins, how are we restored to fellowship if we do sin, uh, how do we stay in fellowship if we want to walk in the light and not sin in the first place. All of that for our fellowship is in chapter 1. And so chapter 2 then starts with this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we, we commit a sin and we're out of fellowship and, we're, and the, the adversary is going to file an accusation against us and say, see, look at that sinner. And Jesus says, that's right, he's a sinner and that sin's paid for. I paid that price. That sin is paid for. He's my advocate. He's my defense attorney. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What a benefit to have Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf as our advocate seated at the Father's right hand. But even before we get to uh, 725, um, I'm not sure why those say Hebrews 10. I'm just spotting this right now. And I want to say that both of those 10s should be 7s. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, and then Hebrews 7, 25. All right. That's uh, clearly that's one my editor missed. All right. Phase two, salvation, the ongoing salvation, saved from the power of sin, saved from the sin temptations that creep up all day, every day, it seems like sometimes, right? And this actually we've seen repeatedly in the earlier chapters of Hebrews, from chapter two to chapter four, it's going to come back again in chapter nine. So it's a, it's a very common uh, theme in Hebrews, and it's not, shouldn't be a surprise to us, as these are themselves uh, former priests, former Levites that are now New Testament believers. Uh, they would understand this role themselves, uh, given that this was their function in the Old Testament too, to intercede for the tribes that they, that they were serving. But here, uh, if you recall, the benefits of having a, a Savior that we have, the benefits of having Jesus Christ come in the flesh, all the way back to chapter 2. Why was it that he humbled himself? Why did he come in the manger? Why was he born of a virgin? Why did he walk a human walk? I mean, couldn't the angel of the Lord just shown up and saved us all? No. That's the whole point. He didn't come to identify with the angels, angelity. He came to identify with humans, with humanity. And so... Um, Hebrews 2, uh, 17 says he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He walked his human walk with our weaknesses, our struggles, our temptations so that he identifies with us. 
He identified with us on the cross and He continues to identify with us in His priestly ministry, in His intercessory prayers. As it says in verse 18, since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are so tempted. So I'm dealing with a sin temptation. I'm getting tempted for whatever sin. I'm tempted to fornicate or steal or murder or whatever it is I'm tempted to do, okay? Or all at the same time or whatever. I get a sin temptation and my Savior is praying for me. He's taking me before the Father and saying, Father, I remember that temptation. I remember that struggle. And, uh, and here's, uh, here's my brother in a, in, a, in, a, in a temptation moment and he needs, he needs the Word of God to come alive. He needs the Holy Spirit to bring to his remembrance the truth from Scripture that addresses that particular sin. He needs the power of the Word of God to save him. And so he's coming to the aid of those who are so tempted. He is able to do this. The Word of God is able to save us. In chapter 4, it's also clear because of his humanity, because he's identifying with us, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's significant. He came down. He walked on this earth, identified with us. Now he's passed through the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. There's that double negative again. Okay? It bugs us as English speakers. It is so beautiful. So we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What do we have? We have an awesome high priest who knows everything we're dealing with. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. When we go to the Father in prayer, do we come because, or do we feel uncomfortable being there? We kind of hang our head and say, well, Father, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. I feel real bad about asking you. <laughs> we get this, this, this block to our prayer life as if somehow uh, when we're having good days and we have better prayers, we're having worse days, uh, I probably shouldn't even mention this, Lord. All of that is just human garbage. Good days, bad days, or anything else in between, that's all relative. We have absolute righteousness praying on our behalf with a Savior that intercedes and who knows all of it anyway. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Say, Father, I'm at a throne of grace and I don't earn this or deserve it, but that's why it's called a throne of grace. (laughs) And I'm at a throne of grace. I'm not at a throne of what I've earned or deserved. I need to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And my Savior was tempted in all things even as we are, and He sympathizes, He intercedes, He prays on my behalf. When I'm there praying, I'm not praying alone. The Son is praying with me. The Holy Spirit is praying with me. He he can put it into words. I can't put it into words. Groaning is too deep for words. So now I've got the Son praying with me. I've got the Holy Spirit praying with me. And then I get the Father who's hearing all these prayers. And what's He want to do? He's going to give exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. So all three members of the Godhead are very powerful in this this process. It's going to come back again in chapter 9. Hebrews 9.24 Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. You realize that? He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
the veil of the temple was rent in two, and he never went in there. Had no business going in there. Had no need to go in there. He just rent the veil in two to show everybody how empty that room was. And then he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He went to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly reality. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now, why? To appear in the presence of God on our behalf for us. He constantly stands before the Father as our advocate. He appears on our behalf. And he doesn't have to keep re-sacrificing himself over and over again like the Levitical priesthood. Year after year, here we go again. Once and for all, he stands there as the, the Lamb of God standing having been slain. It's a powerful truth. Well, there's more. We already saw Romans eight thirty four. That was in that long, I hope I didn't skip over it. That was in that long chain of verses I read in Romans 8. There's also 1 Corinthians 15, 2. There's also 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Real quickly, because I'm getting hungry. Um, I didn't skip over Romans 8, 34, did I? That's a good one. No, we read it, yeah. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? He is the one who died, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, who also intercedes for us. Constantly interceding, constantly praying. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, phase 2 salvation. I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are presently saved, phase two, presently being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you're just counting on phase one salvation only, and then you live a life of sin after that, uh, what an what a empty, vain existence is that? So phase two salvation in uh, in the word there also first thessalonians 2 13 the last passage we'll see on this first thessalonians 2 13 for this reason we also constantly thank god that when you received the word of god which you heard from us and i can say the same thing this morning you came to bible class this morning and you received the word of god what's it going to do it's going to do something powerful it's going to accomplish what he sent it for when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. If you internalize it, if you take it in by faith, if with, in humility you receive the word of God implanted that's able to save your souls, then you by faith are taking in the word of God here this morning. It's going to do its work. It's going to follow you around in places and times and, where, and you know, Pastor Bob's not following you around. The Word of God, though, is. It's, it's going everywhere you go because you've taken it into your soul. And it's going to perform its work in you who believe. It's active. It's alive and powerful. It's active. It does things. It performs its work in you who believe. And, the, and the, maybe the most important thing that it does is it gives you that phase two salvation when you're tempted with various sins and the Word of God does its work and it kicks you and it says, hey, remember me? And it reminds you of truth. It's a powerful thing. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our security. Father, I could preach this 52 Sundays a year. Eternal security 
our eternal life that we have in Christ. Father, I do pray if there's somebody here this morning that, well, first of all, if they don't even know who their Savior is, goodness, let today be the day that they understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that this provision has been made, that simply by trusting in Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, they can receive eternal life. They can become Melchizedek priests right here, right now, right where they're sitting, with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. They don't have to walk an aisle or get baptized or any other thing. They can sit right here, right now, and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. We pray that this might be the day. And then perhaps somebody's sitting here and they, uh, they thought they could lose their salvation or they thought that they have to go to purgatory first or something else has to happen. They've got to earn and deserve all of that garbage, Father. Cleanse their minds from that false teaching. Help them to see that security is a gift like salvation is a gift. We have it. We have it forever. So, Father, I rejoice in these eternal security passages. Thank you for them, Father. I thank you and I praise you. Also, Father, I thank you for we're about to go to a fellowship time. We're going to have a celebration, and all of this is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it's His good pleasure, it's your good pleasure that we recognize, and it's, uh, it is such a glory. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.